This is Alumni Allowed, a podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career path, the ins and outs of their current position, and the career advice they have for students. This series is sponsored by the Graduate Center's Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. I'm Abby Turner, a PhD candidate in educational psychology at the Graduate Center. I work in the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development, and I interviewed Leanne, who is the Director of Evaluation at Education Through Music. She earned her PhD in developmental psychology at the Graduate Center. Hi, Leanne. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So why don't you start off telling us um, where you work and what your position is okay. there? I Currently, I work at Education Through Music, which is a music education nonprofit, and uh, I am the director of evaluation. Great. So what does a director of evaluation do at a nonprofit? Um, I tell us, is our children learning, which is how I tell people. <laughs> That's an outdated reference now. Nobody nobody remembers Bushisms anymore. Yeah, I basically boil it down to um, two major buckets. One is I'm looking at the impact of our program for two major purposes. One is to say that we are really great and please give us more money. Mm-hmm. And the second purpose, which to me is the more important one, is to say how can we be better and where are we great and we should keep doing that and where are we not so great and how can we um, improve that in a way that's informed by data. Great. What kind of programs are you guys implementing in this? So our our mission, our programming, basically the idea is that um, music education has been eroded in schools. A lot of kids aren't getting it, or if they get it, it's like in this patchwork way where like you get these teaching artists who come in and there's no continuity from year to year and it's really hard to have a sustainable music program in a school that's taught by like one person who stays there over time. And it's hard to be that person who teaches it because you're often the only teacher in the building. And so what we do is we we hire the music teachers, we place them in our partner schools with the goal of getting the school to hire the teacher from us. And the programming is doing everything we can to support that teacher to do the programming. So we give them professional development that's relevant to um, music. Uh, a lot of times they don't get that. Um, helping them with classroom management, those kinds of things, um, supplies and stuff like that. Great. Okay. And so as director of, did you say evaluation? Mm-hmm. Okay. So as director of evaluation, um, you're distilling the data for who? Um, it, stakeholders, which is a, when you work in nonprofit, a word you use all the time. <laughs> stakeholders. Stakeholders. We have yes. so many. Um, it really is tons of audiences. Um, it can be for our own internal programs team. Um, for example, they deliver professional development and I, you know, do surveys after the PDs and mm-hmm. sit down with the person and people who delivered it and say, here's um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and here, how can we improve for next time? You know, what's your feedback on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, board members. Board members want, like, high-level stuff, how, uh, indicators of how the program is doing, what's our success, what's our impact. Um, grant makers, very especially grant makers. Um, what's our need? Why, you know, prove that you're needed. Um, so that's sometimes a lot of literature review, or um, in my case, I actually do a lot of work with any publicly available data um, that the city provides that's relevant to us to make the case that we're even necess- necessary in the first place. Oh, wow. Um, so um, the teachers, the schools, um, you know, any anyone who is even peripherally involved or interested in our program is considered a stakeholder, and so in some way data touches them. Are you um, doing this all on your own? Do you have a team? I'm a department of two, <laughs> okay. me being one of those two people. Yeah. Um, yep. So right now it's me, and I have a uh, I have one full time associate. 
Cool. Okay. Um, so why don't you walk us through a little bit of the process or, or journey from the developmental psych program here at the Graduate yep. Center to mm-hmm. education through music. It's like, now. how did I even get here? Um, yeah, so I started my program in 2010. Uh, about halfway through the, so I think my first couple years in the program, I did I did do a paid internship at a at a nonprofit at a nonprofit that dealt um, with homelessness, um, and so that was my first real experience in nonprofits, and that made me realize that I was I think I was most interested in applied um, applied research. I had never actually wanted to be in academia. I knew that going in, um, that wasn't a goal of mine. Um, uh, but and then going to the nonprofits, I said I saw that there is a, a place for um, the kind of things that we learn about and do, um, and it's a, it's like a niche, right? It's a niche that needs to be filled. And the exciting thing about it is it's a niche that the nonprofits themselves are just figuring out they need to fill. Um, so I started there, and that's kind of where I, I started seeing what that place was. At some point, that internship ended, and I saw that a professor at NYU was looking for a research associate on one of their projects. Um, and I knew this professor through um, a research, research associate job I had had at Fordham before I started working. So he had collaborated on that project. I reached out. I got the job. When his graduate student graduated, then I got promoted to project director of that project. And he allowed me to use the data in that project for my dissertation data. Oh, wow. So convenient. Yeah. <laughs> And then that uh, professor at NYU wound up becoming actually kind of my, my de facto um, advisor, even okay. though he was not a graduate student, uh, grad center one. But my actual grad center advisor was great and collaborative and super happy to do that and work yeah. with him and allow me to work with him. When I graduated, that's the year the grant for that project ended, so the timing was good. I then got a job as a director of research at a small nonprofit. Um, I was there for eight months. I learned about um, red flags. I learned about nonprofit red flags. Um, I left there, and now I'm in my current position at ETM. Okay, so you have a lot of nonprofit experience, it sounds like. So let's talk about jobs and nonprofits, because I know there's a lot of room for PhDs and MAs with research skills yeah. to find a home in nonprofits. So what are the pros and cons of being in a nonprofit? Um, gosh, okay, pro. You don't have to rate, if it's a good nonprofit, you don't have to raise your own money. Because to me, that was a big con of being in academia, was this idea that you not only had to do the work, but you had to hustle to like raise the grants and everything. A good nonprofit will have a development department. They will have a stream of revenue and funding from whatever it is they're doing. And your work will help raise that money, but you are not solely responsible for raising the own money to do your own work. And that was huge for me. I hate writing grants. It's okay. my least favorite thing to do. I don't mind helping, but I don't like doing it all the time. Okay. Um, so a big, uh, pro for me was like not having to be on that grant cycle where every single time the grant's about to expire, you're like, do I have work next week? I don't know. That's a huge pro for me. Another huge pro is just, um, I enjoy white collar office work in a white collar office environment that does things like gives you pizza on Fridays and gives (laughs) you benefits and, you know, has other departments you can collaborate with and other people you can work with. Um, so it feels a little less isolated and insular. Cons. Um, nonprofits can be just as shysty and gross as for profits. Sometimes even more so because they are high, they're like trying to hide it. Um, nonprofits in our country often exist to funnel and serve the needs of for for profit businesses. Um, the board members on nonprofits are usually there because that nonprofit serves their for profit need in some way. Um, in my field, I sort of wound up in 
education by accident because I was developmental psych, but it's almost like I did ed psych because that's what I wound up doing. Mm-hmm. I see tons of nonprofits now where their purported goal actually kind of undermines education in this country, particularly nonprofits that are working around charter schools are, are working around um, replacing privatizing services once public services. So for me, a big con for nonprofits is doing the research to figure out um, what's the deal with the place you're at. Are you going to feel comfortable? You know, if you can sleep at night working there and knowing you're doing that. Foundations too. Foundations are really a thing to check that same thing out for. Foundations are sort of like another niche where that skill and nonprofits can be applied there, except you're on the other side where you're evaluating what other people are giving to you. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of foundations where if you look into it and you look in the reason you're like, this is actually something that like the, it's run by the Mercers, right? Like you, maybe you don't want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a con for me for nonprofits. So definitely do your research on the mission that they have. Not just their, what they say their mission is, but like who's behind it. For me, it's like, where does the money come from? Gotcha. It's all about following the money um, and what their actual goals are and okay. what they're trying to do. Another con for nonprofits is, and this is a known thing with nonprofits, they they tend to pay less. They tend to um, over-demand you on capacity. Um, I found that as our generation ages and is taking more management and leadership roles at nonprofits, that's happening less and less. But my experience is still that that is, is still, um, they'll try to screw you, right? They'll try to undervalue you and say, oh, you know, it's a nonprofit, we're here for the mission. I personally don't care. You will pay me for my time and my skill. And if you can't pay me for my time and my skill, then you do not get me and you do not get this work. Mm -hmm. But that's a boundary we all have to set individually for ourselves. And some of us don't have the luxury of doing that when you just need work. So Mm -hmm. it's a balance too. Okay. But you would say... Do, would you say benefits are good in the nonprofit world? Even this if... all depends. <laughs> okay, yeah. This all depends. Okay. Some some nonprofits um, do try to make up in terms of saying like, oh, we'll give you lots of vacation time, or we'll do this and that. But they're all different. I mean, okay. especially if they're small. Small nonprofits are they're genuinely constrained by what's available to them. If they don't have many employees, it's very difficult for them to get the next tier of benefits available to you. They often can't match you or do retirement at all. This is the first job I've had that does retirement, and they don't match. So, you know, there's things you're missing out on sometimes when you're there. Um, It's important to look, especially if you've spent X number of years in grad school, uh, not only not saving for your future, but like actively uh, increasing your debt. So, you know, of course. And what are your hours like? Um, I do straight nine. uh, I say nine to five, but for me, 1030 to 630. I don't know. I'm sort of, as director, I set my own within reason, which is another thing that appealed to me about nonprofits, Um, sort of. It's generally not an urgent type of place. They're okay. flexible in hours if they're a good workspace. And for me, that's actually what I really wanted in a job. I didn't want to be doing something in academia where you are like burning the midnight oil all the time. It's pay me for the time that I'm here and that I'm gone. Got I'm it. not doing, I don't generally do work after hours. I don't check my email after hours. Oh, I don't okay. do weekends. It has to be a serious emergency and those emergencies need to be few and far between. All right, yeah. good. So definitely boundaries is something we've heard a lot. It's boundaries. Set your boundaries with all work environments. Boundaries, <laughs> yes. Good. Okay, so um, I'm interested in how you got your research opportunity in graduate school. Yeah. Um, you said you found um, a position at an NYU lab. Yeah, so project. that was, um, I mean, I found it because it was advertised, right? So I didn't hear from it through a personal connection, but I happened to have a connection to them. And the connection, I actually had a twofold connection to this person. One is in undergraduate, 
I was an undergraduate research assistant and that professor knew this person also. And um, then I worked for another person who also worked with this professor. So this was a professional connection, um, which I think definitely helped me get it because this person was familiar with me. That said, this city is full of large universities that have these projects going on. And if you are looking for them, you will find them and they are often looking for people and they don't have to be people from their own university necessarily. Um, Another thing people don't know is that if a nonprofit like mine has an evaluation department, you could potentially be securing work there and using the data from them as well for your dissertation if they agreed and that's something you want to do. Yeah. Um, now, the danger in all of this is if something goes south and you don't work there anymore, that's not your data and you don't get to take it and you lost your work. But, you know, that's thumbs the brakes. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's how I got that position, and it was it was actually it was huge for me. It was not something I ever thought I'd work in. It took me internationally. It got me into doing research in low income and conflict affected countries, which I didn't set out to do, but loved and um, hope to get back into again one day. I'm accidentally domestic <laughs> again, but uh, yeah. So it was in addition to letting me finish my dissertation, it really set me up well for uh, future employment. Great. Okay. So let's talk about uh, things that you might want to look out for in the workplaces when you're trying to yeah. find the right fit. You've been to a few. So yeah. so what should what's your advice to people I've looking at new all of this the hard way? Um, <laughs> like I said, first and foremost, figure out what that nonprofit's trying to do. Okay. Um, a second red flag I would look out for is um, how does that nonprofit hold the status of evaluation? So there are many nonprofits that are. Um, Nonprofits adapting evaluation is a late stage thing for them because capacity to have an evaluator is is more advanced in a nonprofit. And the uh, order is usually like, we didn't have one, someone asked for it, the development person tried to do it, they couldn't, they got an outside person, it was okay. Then they got a manager under the development person, but the capacity still wasn't there, then they get an evaluation director. If you are looking for an evaluation leadership position in a nonprofit, it should be a director position and not a manager position under someone who is not an evaluator. And I say that for two reasons. One is uh, how much you're empowered to do your job and what you're empowered to do it for. So a big red flag to look at for is, does this nonprofit only want an evaluator to say good things about them in outward facing reports? And then do they subsequently then not care about using that to take an honest look at themselves and improve their programs? If that is the case, you're going to have a bad time because you're going to have a lot of trouble. First of all, they're going to have a problem with you because chances are their program's probably not that good if that's how they're looking at things. And then you're not going to be able to find great things for them and they're going to blame you. It's a real shoot the messenger scenario. Uh, if you are, uh, and then you'll be frustrated because your work isn't being used the way it should be. So that's a red flag, right? Like, is evaluation empowered as a separate department that's held on par with other departments like programs? Um, Another red flag is look at their 990s and look at what their finances are and what their operating capacity is and look at what their um, uh, top leadership makes that they report on there. If they are making something that is wildly out of proportion for what they're bringing in, then chances are they're not spending money wisely and there might be some corruption going on. Glassdoor is oh. uh, the greatest resource of our generation. The greatest <laughs> resource of our generation. Okay. Read those Glassdoor reviews. Yes. Read them, read them, read them. 
every single one all the way through. Um, you found them to be accurate. I have not only found them to be accurate, but weaponized them against employers that I disliked. They are, uh, I'm so glad it exists now, and we're so lucky that they exist now. Yeah. Look for high turnover, right? Look mm-hmm. for those kinds of things. There's um, websites. What does their website look like? Is it impossible to figure out what they actually do from their website? Mm-hmm. Huge red flags. Mm-hmm. Because that means their stuff might not be together, right? Mm-hmm. They might have a ton of mission drift. They might just be doing projects to launder money to friends, basically, is what you'll see happening in a lot of things. Who are their main funders? Who's funding it? Is it coming from someone whose politics you don't agree with? Right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of research and public research you can do when you're looking at places to apply to. All right. Definitely good tips. And so how do you know if you want to be into evaluation? What do you what do you think, um, what characteristics of a graduate student might um, lead you to evaluation? You have to be a huge nerd, which if you're <laughs> an evaluator, you already are. I think for me, um, you have to have a real interest in both big picture fit thinking and details. And you have to have a real interest in bridging the gap between doing evaluation and doing research and communicating to that to people so they can actually use that. So in grad school, we're trained in a very academic way. We're trained to show all the work and make sure you can get this in a peer-reviewed journal and blah, blah, blah. No one cares <laughs> in, in the nonprofit world. Yeah. No one cares. They want it. They don't care what your sample size was. They don't care what um, type of statistic you've used. They want to know the bottom line, what you find out, and then if they have questions later, they'll ask you what they were, and you should be prepared to answer them. Yeah. You should make sure the work is done really well in the background, yeah. but they don't actually care about all the details we've been taught to care about, right? <laughs> sure. So the most important thing is that you are a communicator, that you are um, explaining your findings um, to people, um, and that you're able to bridge those gaps for these different audiences so that it's meaningful and it's useful for them. What's the, it's the what's the bottom line question all the time? What's the take-home thing? And how do you practice that kind of skill? Um, it's, I'm constantly practicing okay. it. I practice it literally every day. I sometimes literally write down, like, I used these words today and I didn't think they worked well and I'm going to use these words tomorrow. I mean, okay. it's down to, uh, gotcha. you know. It's, con- it's just, just constant practicing. It helps to learn from people who are already doing it. It helps to look at what other people are doing. It helps to, I constantly just pretend I'm not me. I just look at it and I go, if I had no idea, right, like, what, I'm not used to reading pie charts. I don't know what statistical significance really means. Does this make sense to me, right? And I learn from the questions people ask me, common questions. Over time, it's like, uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand this y-axis. Or I'm going to start labeling it a little differently, okay. right? Oh, these colors are differently. You have to really be interested in a bunch of stuff. Graphic design. Okay. Weirdly, incredibly important. <laughs> insanely important you'd think it shouldn't be it is a visual communication of what we do is so important for bottom line and that's something i've started dabbling in a lot actually um to get that to come across are you often making presentations for your audience yes all the time yeah i get good at that right powerpoints good powerpoints be good at powerpoint make engaging powerpoints right you're there to enter you're entertaining it's putting on a song and a dance honestly it really is Mm -hmm. it's not writing paragraphs the fewer words the better it here in grad school you learn all about making use more words (laughs) Use the big words. Say say ontology, right? No one wants to hear those words. I used the word Sisyphean in an email once and I was mocked for weeks. (laughs) No one wants to hear that, right? They want the pictures and the arrows and the animations and then you to tell them and walk them through it. So that's the expectation, right? Learn the work on your graphic design stuff. Cool. Okay. And um, and so job interviews and applications – resumes, cover letters. Do you have any tips for those? Yeah. Great. Um, The biggest thing I've learned is tell them why they need you. 
Okay. The other the thing with evaluation specifically is um, when a nonprofit is ready to hire an evaluator, have an evaluator, they typically have this idea that their only purpose is to show show good things happening. When you get in there to that interview, if you can tell them, yes, I can do that, but here's also what I'm going to do for you. And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to clarify your program model because I can see on your website that no one can articulate what you actually do. I'm going to use that to figure out if you're doing it well or not. I'm going to tell your program people how to do it better. We're going to work with them on that, right? And then when you have it better, then we're going to actually show that you do things well. When you sit down and you tell people that, then they get really excited because that's not how they thought of it. They think Mm. you're a nerd, get in the corner, crunch (laughs) some numbers and make us look good, right? When you show them that you're actually bringing a lot more to the table that Mm -hmm. is integrated into all of the departments, programs, marketing, right? Um, then that's where your niche is. So I get in there and I like to listen to their needs and what they have done and what they've got going, have done my research beforehand um, from what I can see, um, ask some questions and then, and then tell them how I work um, because that's part of establishing a boundary from the beginning. I know at the interview for this place I said, um, I don't want to work for a place that doesn't want to hear criticism. Um, from an evaluation. So if you're not serious about taking learnings from evaluation and using it for program improvement, then I'm not the person for you. And it's important, I think, to establish that from the get-go, because honestly, some places don't want to do that. So it's better you leave them out now for yourself. Yeah, this is really good advice. And um, what are your coworkers? What are other people working? (laughs) Other people working in nonprofit world. What do you see? Like other PhDs, master's students. Does everybody have a graduate degree? Or we have practitioners. In New York, everyone's so (laughs) overeducated. So um, you know where I am. A lot of people have their master's degrees and are professionals in different fields. There is one other PhD where I work, but in a different field than mine. But they, um, everybody is an expert in their own. Um, field and in what they know and um, like for me for example like coming into a music education background I had an education background and I dabbled in viola as a kid in a real poorly half-assed way but um, I don't know anything about the pedagogy of music education right I don't know that I'm not going to pretend to know that and I'm going to do everything I can to learn on my own but I'm going to defer that expertise to other people mm-hmm. right same with uh, marketing the best way to market um, uh, you know the best way to use like statistics and marketing and things and what people will find appealing that's that's their expertise that's marketing's expertise so um, for me it's like I really satisfying actually to be able to lean on other people and to kind of integrate and collaborate that way so then like I learned so much from my colleagues all of the time it's fascinating yeah right um, and I take whatever they learn and I just try to reflect that back to them because ultimately my role is I'm serving them. Um, evaluation is a support department. I am, you know, supporting their needs. So I need to learn what those needs are and as much as possible about that. Great. Okay. You've explained it, like, really well. Yeah. What, what's a challenge that you've faced in nonprofit evaluation? Uh, one thing for sure is um, being a uh, gatekeeper of ethics. Actually. So in academia, there's a process and it's understood and we all know what that is and how the IRB works. Um, again, in nonprofits, no one knows. Um, and in some cases, they don't care. So uh, it's kind of a gray area sometimes whether you need an IRB for the work you're doing. And the general guideline is, you know, if this is going to be, you know, human subjects research for um, general knowledge and IRBs typically define general knowledge as for a peer reviewed paper, which you may or may not be working to in the future. For me, uh, one thing I have found is to be incredibly useful is yes, to have some large impact project that is um, 
or is or could be used for that. So it's good to be going through an IRB process for everything anyway. But there are many projects you will do that would not require an IRB. And unfortunately, because um, people are not familiar with ethics in research or evaluation, you're going to be the gateholder for that. And you're going to be asked to do things that probably you shouldn't do. Um, that an IRB would not approve necessarily if you had to go through an IRB. And so for me, I found what a good thing to do is to um, make sure that if you know you are contracting an external IRB, uh, if you're working with schools or some other institution, you're going through their IRBs, you're getting familiar with what their rules are and what their regulations are. And then you're just applying those rules and regulations to all of your work. Uh. Um, you're, whether you're going through the IRB or not for a very specific project, just keep those rules and regulations um, because they will have people, you know, you will have a board member ask you something like, um, you know, why can't we make every single person mandatorily answer a survey? Well, we know why that's a bad idea and they don't know why that's a bad idea. And sometimes they don't care to hear why it's a bad idea. Um, and so the only thing they'll hear is we're not allowed to do it because of an IRB. It is much easier to blame a regulatory body with what they perceive as completely wildly, uh, you know, awful, uh, you know, restrictions, bureaucracy. And yeah. It's just like that's out of my hands. <laughs> Um, so the IRB you usually deal with is the DOE? I do too. I do the DOE's IRB because we work in public schools. Um, and then I, uh, I contract with an external IRB. The external IRB is, is much more lax, right? Um, the, the institution's IRB is going to have very specific rules. And the Department of Ed in New York City has yeah. very, very specific rules. Although I have to say, I've not found any of them unreasonable. Um, yeah. I, I actually see... I've done a couple myself. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, not taking kids out of their regular classes, um, you know, unless necessary, you know, making sure teachers cannot administer. I mean, that's actually a great example. Um, they have a rule specifically that says, you know, the teachers cannot be administering this research, which is, if you were a good researcher, not something you would have them do anyway. But in terms of the time and logistics of data collection, it's an appealing thing to do. Um, and sometimes, you know, people aren't going to want to hear about how it's problematic in all these other ways and that it's not good data and it's not good practice. The only thing that they'll hear is, we're not allowed to do it. We're not allowed to do it. Do you have any tips for finishing off a dissertation? You need someone else's data. Okay. You need to get it. Um, if you didn't already, I'm so sorry that you're trying to do it on your own. Um, that's I would not have finished in six years if I... <laughs> I would not have finished in a completely average time frame if I um, had not got hooked up um, with that project at NYU with somebody else's data. Mm -hmm. um, everyone I know who is taking longer to finish, it's because they um, struggle. They had to acquire data on their own, and that requires funding. Um, if you are listening to this and you are a prospective student or early student, my advice to you would be to really investigate the extent to which someone you want to work with has an active project that you will use that data for. Another weird thing that happens in grad school is it's like they do these interviews and they're like, well, what do you want to study? Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Study what someone else is studying. Take their data. You'll find a reason to be interested in it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. It's not your ideal thing, whatever. I promise you that whatever your ideal thing to study isn't being funded right now or ever. <laughs> Yeah. Nobody's funding our me search, right? Just take somebody else's data and do it. You're going to learn what you need to learn from it. And when you're done, no one cares what you've written ever, 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 ever. I'm so sorry to break it to you. <laughs> no one cares. So like this idea that like what you're doing for your dissertation is your magnum opus and has to be this amazing reflection of your ideals and whatever. You got to, you know, it's just be hooked up to somebody else's data. 
make sure it's 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 a good project, it's a sustainable project, and and use that for yours. Um, and uh, please be evaluated for ADHD. I didn't figure out I had it till after I finished the dissertation. Oh, wow. It would have been a lot easier if I had been medicated during it. Actually, <laughs> you know, this is really interesting. Um, I have spoken to other graduate students who also had adult diagnoses of HD. And if you I wanted to talk hard. about it, I would love to talk about it. I think, and especially when you're so high achieving, you're often overlooked for anything. I think like, it's a problem. How can you have a learning disability if you. Yeah. Uh, are such a high achieving scholar. And I'm a developmental psychologist. I know what ADHD was. And yeah. when my therapist said it to me, I was like, oh no, how did I miss that? I'm so, I know what that <laughs> so is. So let's talk about what does that look like and, and what, what services yeah. might you reach out to? What, what have you been using as a resource well, to help? I think there's a couple confounding factors. One is a lot of us are female and ADHD symptoms are really manifest differently in us, right? Like boys in, in like grade school get recognized because they're like externally disruptive and their grades are falling girls tend to like keep their keep it on the level right we're in our seats and our grades are pretty good but we like just weren't paying attention right but somehow we're maintaining so I think for me it was overlooked that way because I always had very good grades and people just generally they don't they don't really understand what ADHD is honestly and what that looks like so I also think that in PhD programs, there's probably a lot of us because we are high achievers. And um, frankly, one component of ADHD, one symptom of it is hyper-focus, where you um, can't stop focusing on something that really interests you. And guess what PhD students are doing? Mm -hmm. That's all we're doing. We're hyper-focusing on this thing that interests us. Mm -hmm. So I have a sneaking suspicion that ADHD is actually really, really common in PhD students. Um, And I don't, I can't actually, (laughs) I just have a hypothesis. Yeah. Well, you also have learned to compensate up until right. adulthood. And if we've too, all right? made it to yeah. this level, we've all learned to compensate. Yes. Like we all have great non-medical coping mechanisms. The funny thing for me was actually um, because at this level, it's like if I never pursued a PhD, I never would have realized this because my coping mechanisms were really just fine for everything I've been doing up until then. And it was actually um, a professor that I was working with. Um, kind of like very gingerly approached me towards the end of my dissertation and was like, you know, I really want to support you. I just, I've noticed in the years of working with you, these things about you, and I would encourage you to um, get your shit together. And I went to my therapist and in like one sentence, my therapist was like, oh, oh, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD? And I was like, no, I, oh my God, all this whole time. Then after the dissertation, got real prescription medication. without which I would not have been able to uh, be working in my early career the way I am. So I'm better late than never situation. Um, And for me, the thing that was apparent is so much of the dissertation is working on stuff you don't want to work on, right? The lit review, the constant review, you hate it, right? Which is natural. (laughs) But like even, it was like I couldn't even plow through stuff that should have been like simple to plow through, right? And that's a real ADHD thing. Like I just, you hit your threshold early and it's like, all I have to do is make the page numbers right. And I'm sitting here for eight hours instead of actually doing the page numbers because it doesn't interest me. Um, apparently, normally wired people can just make themselves do that. So if you're finding that you are maybe, maybe just get evaluated if you feel like you're struggling a lot. Because I think it's probably more common for us than people realize. And uh, boy, would that have helped me out a lot. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Have any advice? What do you words of encouragement? Words of encouragement. Do you have any advice? 
know your worth. Know your worth. When you don't know your worth, you make it hard for the rest of us. Okay. <laughs> That's my big thing. Know your worth for you and also for me. Because when I have to lowball myself because some other PhD is undermining me by 20 grand. Okay. For example, do not take unpaid internships. Stop taking them. Don't do work for free. Make mm-hmm. them pay you. Mm-hmm. Know how much work it takes to do a study including your mam- your actual hours from um, planning that study, collecting that data, getting IRB approval, cleaning that data, analyzing and writing up, because people think you can do a randomized control trial for $5,000 and they will make you do it if you do not put down that boundary. So learn how much time it takes and what that time is worth and how much manpower you need to accomplish something. And then learn how to say no okay. um, when someone cannot do that in a certain amount of money. It's really like know your boundaries and know your worth. Um, start demanding that we are paid for the experts that we are. I, you, when you leave academia, you will be shocked at what a big fish you are in a small. It feels okay. like everybody is so smart and such a genius and knows all these things here. And when you get out of the real world, you will realize that like you know more about this one thing that you studied than anybody else there, and that is valuable, okay. and you should be paid for it. Great. So demand that they pay for it. I don't care if you're a nonprofit, right? <laughs> great. Yeah. That's great, Grace. Okay, so Leanne, thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you for having me. It was great me. talking to you, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks. Yes. Bye. Thanks to Leanne for coming in and giving us lots of tips on working in the nonprofit sector. The Office of Career Planning and Professional Development can help you decide if nonprofit evaluation would be a good fit for you. Make an appointment to speak with one of our career advisors at cuny.is careerplan. You can find a list of our upcoming events there and also follow us on Twitter at careerplanpc. Thanks for listening.